Right on, right on, right on. Right on radio. Right on radio. Good morning and welcome to Right On Radio. For all those listening out there, this is Jesse Zaboder, um, also on illuminatethedarkness.com. And I'm joined today with my co-host, Jeff. And hello. <laughs> hello, Jeff. How is your morning going? It's the best day of my life, Jesse. That's awesome. <laughs> Do we want to know why? <laughs> I say that every day. <laughs> That's good. Well, we have today, we have a special guest, uh, Paul, and I want to introduce Paul. Uh, for those who are familiar with my work with Illuminate, we have a special project that we call the Veterans Project. And this past month, we've been in the Texas area and making connections with different individuals who work with the veterans in Texas. So I was at the um, Women of War fundraiser um, a couple weeks back, and that's where I met Paul, and we got talking and realized that uh, both of us, you know, serve veterans in our communities. We also ser um, serve other individuals, those who um, are first responders or law enforcement. And so, Paul, you know, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and sharing with people a little bit about um, your military service and then how you got involved with the law enforcement in your area. Well, they kind of go hand in hand and good morning, everybody. Nice to be here um, and happy to talk about the topics we'll be discussing today. I began my, I guess, uh, military career back in 1984 when I first enlisted. And I first enlisted, I was, uh, I did army time and then I had some breaks in service and wound up getting into the uh later in my career I, I was out for a while and joined the navy reserves but my primary you know the the money in the bank the retirement job was uh police department and i started off my police career going make getting a, a criminal justice degree at texas state university back in the 80s I went up to the dc area because uh, like many college kids you graduate you don't really have a job and your apartment lease is up and uh, you got no money. And so my dad was in the Air Force stationed up in D.C. And he said, all right, boy, come on home. You're getting a job, but you're paying rent. And I started working and, uh, you know, about a year into it, I met my wife and we got married and we were both pretty young, uh, snatched her up when she was about 21. And um, and it, we're still married, which is really against the odds in law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, we'll have our 33rd anniversary next week. Wow. And she stuck with me through it all, the police and the military career. And so um, as a reservist, if people out there don't know, um, two weeks a month or two weeks a year and a weekend every month, you go down and do your military training. But after 9-11, that kind of changed. Um, I got I got recalled to active duty. September 11th hit September 27th. I was active duty United States Navy for a year. And um, that kind of began the cycle of deployments uh, post 9-11 and the current, I guess you can call it a war on terrorism. Um, <laughs> they call it whatever they want. Global war on terrorism. Yeah, okay, whatever. Um, but while I was doing the Navy stuff uh, after a while in D.C., I, uh, I never wanted to live there to begin with. But, you know, God put my wife in my life 
put me in DC for a reason. And so uh, I guess that's how that worked out. Now, uh, talked her into moving to Texas. Austin was hiring and I got on with, um, got on with the Austin Police Department in 92, retired the day I was eligible in 2015 as a lieutenant, did all kind of stuff downtown and uh, spent a lot of time all over the city as a cop doing a multitude of jobs from patrol and field training officer and motorcycle officer. And I was a detective for a while, worked the organized crime division, uh, just a myriad of jobs and balancing that between deployments. I went to Iraq in 2008, 2009 on a counter IED mission where we were kind of like uh, CSI Baghdad whenever an attack would happen or when they would find a rocket array or a bomb making factory, my team would go in and uh, do the forensic exploitation of the evidence that we found. And we would collect the data, try to find the signature of the bomb maker. And then we'd send in the snake eaters to go shoot them in the face and snake eaters. I'm talking the seals and the green berets and, and whatnot. And, um, and my job, because I had a training background, I actually went out and lived with the Iraqi EOD teams on the Iraqi army and helped train them to do what we were doing so our guys wouldn't have to be exposed to the threats out in the field as much. Um, so that that kind of people say, well, do you think you made a difference? I said, you know, history will be the judge of that. It's hard to tell. Um, after we pulled out of Iraq in 2011, God knows what happened to those guys when ISIS took over most of the country. Um, it just kind of, it's frightening. But my takeaway from Iraq um, was that in when I was living with the Iraqi soldiers and communicating with them on a individual person-to-person -person basis in their living quarters, they were very hospitable. They want the same thing that we wanted as human beings, uh, a job and safety for our family and food and clothing and shelter. And to just be left alone to live their lives and they didn't hate us um per se there was of course their exposure to americans is a convoy rolling through town with a bunch of tough looking guys pointing machine guns you know at them and they're like why do they always look so mad they go you know why why I said, well, because they're in Iraq and it's hot and they're away from home. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hot. <laughs> yeah, people are trying to kill them. It was miserable, you know, and, uh, and and they go, well, OK, you're different. I said, well, I'm different because I'm sitting here breaking bread with you and we're sharing a meal and we're talking about, you know, just life. And uh, and, and it was a I really built a respect for some of those guys. And even though you got to be on edge because uh, sometimes the American soldiers at that time were getting killed by the people that we were supposed to be helping. You know, you hear about it in the news, Oh, Afghan soldiers shoot six Americans on base or same thing happened in Iraq. But, um, you know, we were always armed. We always had to have our guard up, but we were also kind of, you know, trying not to over, uh, be over vigilant and to the point where we couldn't communicate. So, you know, Paul, uh, I love that you made that point. Um, uh, people are people around the world you know governments are deciding to do these wars and things like that uh, the people in iran for instance or iraq and that they really don't hate what we have in fact they want the same things that we have and, oh they'd love to be here yeah yeah and, and unfortunately sometimes a mole is going to get in they're always going to do it it's war right 
But, uh, you know, I'm really glad you made that point. We really don't have the enemies that the media has been painting for, you know, decades now. Uh, and and uh, you're right, Jeff. And, and I think a lot of the negativity is fed by the media. A hundred percent. They don't take the time to talk to the guys that are boots on ground doing the real job. And a lot of times they're restricted in what they can say. They don't, their, their chain of command doesn't want them talking. And, uh, you know, you have strict guidelines and what you can and what you can't say. I've dealt with the media a lot throughout my career, both in the military and in police work. And I had guidelines about what I can say, but I'm retired now. I'll say whatever the heck I want. And uh, <laughs> they don't like it too bad. And uh, I didn't sign any non-disclosure agreements. I wasn't exposed to these high level top secret Delta Force operations. Um, I was just a regular guy. And, uh, you know, I was also blessed being a military dependent. I traveled all over the world as a kid and got exposure to all. I was born in Japan. I wasn't even born here. Five kids in my family, nobody born in the States. I've lived in Europe and the Middle East and the Far East and the Philippines. And a hundred percent of the time, everywhere I went, if you take the time to meet the people not living outside the gates of the base who are feeding off the American dollar, trying to make a buck. If you, if you take the time to get into the communities, you're going to find the same thing they would find if they got into our community. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you ran across somebody in your life from Germany or even uh, some, some strange guy from Toronto or uh, <laughs> it's Jeff's in Toronto, if you, <laughs> but but I was born. I, I was made in the USA. Okay, okay. Well, there you go. Uh, I wasn't. Uh, I got a I got a like a GI Joe stamp on my behind, made in Japan. But um, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm surprised we didn't have my mom and dad didn't have more kids while they were over there because they were they were 20 when they had me. And this is before TV and they're in a foreign country, not much to do, you know, um, <laughs> not much to do. You had to entertain yourselves. But anyway, um, if you take the time to meet people uh, there, it's fun. It, it's I love the interaction. And, and so I brought that with me when I went to Iraq and uh, in the Persian Gulf. And I don't dislike. Uh, you know, I don't hate anybody just because of where they're from. Mm -hmm. I, I may hate what they do or how they act, but, um, you know, does, does the average person serving in those positions, are, are they able to get that type of engagement or, you know, mm. really engage with people or is that discouraged? Or? It depends on the job that you have. Okay? okay. And the people that you're dealing with. So if you're in a, you're, you're, you're just, stuck in the inside the fob inside the wire at the base you're only interacting with other americans if you go out and you're on some sort of civil affairs team then you you have the you're meeting with the community but then the civil affairs team they're going out and and this the leaders that they're meeting with out boots on ground outside the wire a lot of time they just want to get money from the americans you know okay what can you do for me okay we'll build a school for you um where's the Taliban, you know, <laughs> and they'll tell you. And then, you know, it, it's like, I don't know, it, it, it's not the genuine one-on-one, -on -one, but in the 
mm -hmm. Arab or Islamic culture, they very much are, uh, if they welcome you into their home, nobody's going to mess with you if they can have anything to do with it. And uh, the Lone Survivor uh, movie, I think, had a good example of that uh, when Marcus was taken in by the Afghan family after he was wounded and they wouldn't let the, the bad guys take him because no, he's my guest. And, uh, I, I saw that when they welcomed us into their homes, but that was mm -hmm. uh, the regular, regular troops didn't really get that exposure. So we didn't get the individual, uh, one-on-one -on -one positive relationships. You know, Paul, I, I see a really natural segue to law enforcement here because one of the criticisms that I've had of law enforcement, and it's not the officers, it's not, it's more the directives that come down from, you know, the mayors and things like that. But what's really been removed uh, in recent decades is the community interaction the police used to do. Well, here, here's something to think about the if you think about our parents' generations, um, the the picture of the beat cop, right? Walking around, uh, talking to people in the neighborhoods, getting to know the people. And if something happened, people would tell the officer and they trusted him. And he was a, he was a member of the community. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, 911 comes into play 50 years ago or whenever that first started. And then all you have is drive-by cops answering calls, Shoom, you know, fast they can get there. And it became more, I think the perception was that it was more impersonal, but it's a call driven um, police model. And if you have shortages of cops, they, they don't, they can't take the, in, in a, a multitude of calls every day. When I was in DC as a cop, it was not unusual to have between 20 and 30 calls I had to take during an eight hour shift. And I didn't have time to stop the car and get out and play basketball with a group of kids. I was, I was call driven. It was just go, 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 go. You get to the call, you take care of it. You go on to the next one. Bam, 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 bam. Mm -hmm. And, um, in some times, for example, a big part of my career was working downtown in Austin and those are bicycle and foot patrols and uh, kind of a mix. And you kind of got a chance to know, the community know the business owners there's a heavy drug uh, culture downtown a lot of drug traffic street level drug trafficking going on uh, a lot of a large homeless population a huge uh, transient not like homeless transient but like people coming and going it's an entertainment district downtown and so those people you don't really get to know but you also have to have a a, a friendly demeanor you're representing the city but when I was down there, I actually got a really good opportunity to have what you're talking about, Jeff, that old one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. They knew who I was. I would walk in, hey, you want to, you know, want a cup of coffee? Have it, sit down, take a load off. And Texas is hot. You know, you want to get in some AC and, you know, pull your vest away from your chest and pump some cold air in there and just kind of catch a breather because there's a lot of chaos going on downtown. And uh, that like our neighborhood where I live right now, it's a suburban neighborhood. I don't know who patrols my neighborhood. I don't know who the officer is. I know the chief cause he lives down the street. We've got about maybe 10,000 people in my town, but it's not a, um, not that old school kind of Andy Griffith Mayberry type feel. 
And for you young people out there, that was a TV show about a small town <laughs> in North Carolina back in the 60s. When I teach my classes, Jeff and Jess, it is so funny when I'm teaching these millennials and I make old cop TV show references and they just stare at me like a hog looking at a wristwatch. They don't know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and I have I to go. remember that old show, Cops. I was a fan of that. Yeah, yeah, right. Cops. Oh, don't they show that on uh, FX now? I was like, oh, God. But, Come on, the classic was Barney Miller, in my opinion. Uh, Barney Miller was awesome. There's just, that was a funny cop show, well written. Um, uh, I, I didn't get it as much you know when i was a kid i'm 57 now you know I, I came up through the 70s and 80s cop shows columbo and kojak and all that and i make these kojak references and kids, they're like huh what are you talking about uh, uh, is that you know, the bald guy yeah no they don't even they the don't know telly uh, yeah is that, telly savalas <laughs> come on the dirty dozen uh, right. help me here you know work with me <laughs> so what is the so we've got the kind of this transition that's gone on, you know, um, as time gone on, has gone on from, you know, the really engaged community law enforcement to now there's this distance. And, you know, how do you see that kind of playing out with things that are going on now? Um, you know, how does that distance affect, you know, the day-to-day -day job of those who are serving? Well, here's something that you you're not going to see in the media okay where i work now we engage with mostly small and medium-sized police departments all over the state of texas do a lot of consulting and training and when i get outside the city limits of the big city what's going on is that the communities around the big cities um let's look at austin for example that's where i spent my career austin police department and the, the medias and the city council are demonizing what I firmly believe is one of the best trained, best equipped, most professional, highest paid police departments in the country. That's what Austin is. But after this uh, George Floyd thing last year, they started protesting and demonizing and everybody, it was just horrible. Um, and they're acting like APD killed George Floyd. And, and so uh, why, why, are, why are you coming at me like this? We've got a great police department, but the cities around it, Round Rock, Pflugerville, Georgetown, Lago Vista, Cedar Park, the greater metropolitan communities surrounding Austin, they love their police officers. They support them. Uh, an example, at the height of all the garbage going on last summer, there was an officer-involved shooting up in Georgetown or in uh, Cedar Park that the it was a barricaded situation. Call out the SWAT team. Uh, it, it was horrible. But the community came and we're bringing Gatorade to the officers working on the, the barricades. You don't hear about that in the media. You don't hear about people uh, showing up on law enforcement Memorial Week with, hey, we ordered some pizzas for the guys. You know, here's some barbecue for the guys. You don't hear that. And, it, and when it happens in the big cities, you're really not going to hear it because it doesn't uh, doesn't support the narrative that's being put out there that oh the cops are the bad guys and uh, i mean just look at look at what happened last weekend on sixth street did you guys see the news 15 people shot one killed two wow. teen two teenagers from 
uh, Colleen came down and just went into a shooting frenzy in the middle of the crowd. And if, let me paint a picture. Sixth Street is like Bourbon Street. Okay. Every weekend, they shut down 14 square blocks downtown Austin to pedestrians only. And there's between 30 and 50,000 people down there partying it up at about 100 bars in that 14 square block area. And uh, the street is shoulder to shoulder at two o'clock when they close the bars out. And, you know, this is, you can't not hit somebody if you pull the trigger uh, down there. And these two knucklehead teenagers, one's 17 and one's 15, just started blasting and we're, we're indiscriminately shooting and all kind of people got hurt. But the APD, in spite of all the negative stuff that you hear from city council and from um from the media they had officers taking off their own um tourniquets applying tourniquets on the street right there because there's with that big crowd you've got cops on every corner in groups and so our response time is seconds to these things but if you've ever taken the time to go out to a range and shoot rapid fire with a semi-automatic I can empty that whole magazine of 18 rounds in three seconds. It, it doesn't take much. It's almost like a machine gun. And so the cops were there. The officers were picking people up, putting them in patrol cars and driving them to the hospital themselves instead of waiting for EMS, because it would be quicker for us to get them to the hospital than waiting for EMS and get them that emergency, you know, that, that first few minute treatment. And the officer just sprang into action. And that's not unusual. That's not an anomaly. Cops all over the country are doing that kind of stuff, and you don't hear about it. Only thing you're going to hear about is if it's a uh, something that that fits the police <coughs> versus versus minority narrative. Because I really think they're trying to cause strife between the police and minority communities. And and let me tell you, coming from the law enforcement end, I never asked if I got a nine one one call in a tough part of town. Uh, what colors is the complainant? Uh, nope, we're we're not going to go. <laughs> no, if, if somebody's screaming for help, you just we're gonna, go. I'm going to go and I'm going to help you. I'm going to do everything I can. And people say, "Would you take a bullet for so and so?" Would I take? A, I'll take a bullet from somebody I don't even know. I'm going to go to your house. I'm not going to. I'm going to help you, regardless of who you are, what you came from, how what your background is. It's not the issue. The issue is the the crisis at hand and we want to come in and we will put ourselves in harm's way for complete strangers and what complete stranger is going to do that for you and you know that's the majority of it uh, of of the officers uh, people get in for all of the right reasons but it's become you've brought up a couple of great points paul because right now uh Basically, all of Western civilizations around the world are in the midst of what's what we call a color revolution. And that's what they're doing. You know, the identity politics is all about dividing people. It's about getting rid of, you know, listen, they want to get rid of police and have their own, you know, the Democratic Party wants their own army, essentially, yeah. you know, to enforce their political agendas. And, you know, it's listen, this isn't the first time it's happened. You know, it, it's happened in many other countries and it's worked successfully uh, but what gets me and i think there there's a there's a root there's always the uh, a kiss ass at every, any company and you know i think there's there's the couple of young cops that are going along with this and, and i usually will say young because 
in my experience and what I've been seeing is they are the young guys and, you know, they just started their career and they're doing what they're told and they're following the political correct uh, thing. Perhaps they're not old enough to have wisdom yet. Uh, you know, wisdom doesn't really kick in until you're 25. Uh, and then, it, you know, I think every five or seven years, you realize you get a little bit more nuggets of wisdom. But, you know, what are the the uh, more experienced police or you know, doing to combat just those few that are inside the organizations that are going along with this. So I got a different perspective on that, Jeff. Um, when cops come in at the beginning of their career, they've just been indoctrinated in the police academy. This whole cultural diversity and, and community involvement is nothing new. We've been teaching it as long as I can remember in modern police culture. They want you to know your community and get along with people. Now, this you, you're talking about the political correctness. The guys who are enforcing these idiotic policies being pushed down on them by uber liberal city councils or mayors, what you talked about, the kiss ass, right? Well, that's the, the brass implement the policies. The young guys coming in, like you said, are doing what they're told. And any cop who's been a cop for, you know, three to five years has had enough real world experience this Pollyanna thing image that they are trying to, uh, you know, the kumbaya, hold my hands, you know, the cultural diversity rainbow cops get in there and they get a real um, experience after a few years of, Oh my gosh, you know, it isn't like they told me in the academy, you know, everybody doesn't like us. And if I'm nice, people aren't going to be nice back sometimes. And they get jaded and they get that dose of reality. They start building that wisdom, that foundation of knowledge from which to build the rest of their career on and their opinions about people. Most cops are pretty doggone ju good judges of character, you know, outside of their own <laughs> a household because you know with a like a 80 percent divorce rate you know we can talk about that later too but um but they become very good judges of character and if you ever want to like a honest opinion about somebody who you may know you know may have an acquaintance and you have a cop friend you go what do you think about so and so and they're going to tell you eh, well uh I'd, I'd be careful around that guy and this is why they're probably right. You know, I call it street psychology. My sister is a PhD psychologist and she has a practice and we talk about these things all the time. Anything from the experiences with the, with the crazies on the street sometimes uh, to our own handling our own mental health issues in a healthy way that uh, because you can't help but be exposed to that type of consistent chaos and not have it affect you in a negative way if you're not prepared for it but you know and, and i think this is going to go where where jesse wanted it to go because it, it's really hard to prepare for the barrage and and the decision making that police have to do day to day uh and particularly in in active situations uh, every situation is completely different that you guys run into. I'm sure there's similarities. Of course, there's domestics, there's uh, the homeless guys, there's, you know, there's similarities, but every situation is different. And particularly when there's danger involved, 
Now, uh, you know, the police have to not only defend their life, they have to possibly save a life, perhaps even save the life of the perpetrator. But in, in the back of their head now, they've probably got this, uh, you know, what's the news going to say about this thing, particularly if it's, uh, you know, a different color or something involved. And the, the stress that is going on to these fine men and women is just, well, first of all, it's undeserving right now um it's a really lack of respect for our law enforcement community in my opinion and by the way i, I appreciate that you disagreed with me uh, on that and i think you won me over on that because you have more knowledge and uh, i'll succeed to that but so when you bring this stuff home and and particularly working shift work on top of it mm -hmm. how does this affect a law enforcement professional when they get into their house well um and this is kind of what got me here today jesse and i when we were at that event a couple of weeks ago started talking about some of these issues and how the military and law enforcement are both paramilitary organizations of course and deal with violence and terrible things but the the, the difference between the two okay is that military generally spends 95 percent of their time training five percent of the time actually doing the job in a very small percentage of the military is actually combat arms okay by that i mean infantry or cavalry or armor or the seal teams or the guys actually pulling triggers getting their boots dirty call it boots on ground uh, mixing it up with the enemy most of the military is support on the police department side you spend 95 percent of your time doing the job and five percent training you know that, those numbers are flip-flopped and that's not i don't have empirical evidence to you know if you have listeners want to want the metrics on it i'm just speaking off of my experience okay um generally in general and so whenever the officers are out there doing the job every day people have you been in combat you ever had to shoot, shoot anybody uh all this type of stuff i've been in hand-to-hand -hand combat my whole career and they don't care how old you are they don't care what sex you are they don't care uh you know if you had a bad day you go in there uh, i talk to people jeff when's the last time you threw a punch as a grown-up i'm, I'm gonna take the fifth amendment on that okay one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and some people and jess i mean how many times as an adult have you actually a woman been in a fight like where you were like punching somebody are getting punched it's not normal mm -hmm. and we do that i mean as adults i mean you got your playground scraps but most of us grow out of it right um but as a cop you're actually using force against another individual mm -hmm. and you know i'd i'd rather love than fight any day of the week um that's just who i am and most of us are that way and the the things that got to me that that made me lose sleep that made me have those dreams that shake you awake you know those like heart pounding breathtaking dreams or uh would happen after i was in a fight with somebody because i hate fighting people you know I, I like getting along with people and that disturbed my you know my my id right the way back my lizard brain you know that that kind of stuff really affected me and when i talk about it now even though i've been out of it for a while i still uh you know like if we talk about these things today or if i'm telling war stories they're going to come back 
tonight when I go to bed, you know, it, it'll revisit me. But um, how do they affect us at home? How is it similar to the military? Well, the, the PTSD, um, and Jess, you can back me on this. You work with the veterans uh, through their PTSD things, and that's a common phrase, but it's not PTSD. It's PTSI. It's an injury. It's not a disorder, right? Um, the things that affect officers are similar to the things that affect troops that are in combat. And, and so the, uh, the treatment is the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, uh, just some of the, the trauma, uh, the I, the EMDR or right. Is that the, am I saying it in the right pattern, but there's a treatment where the officers or, or people are trained to reframe the way they think of things uh, and, and the way that they live through the scenarios is similar. It started off as treating uh, victims of sexual assault because it's a similar tragedy or a similar trauma. And then that goes, went to the military. And now over the last 10 to 15, 20 years, we've really started paying attention to the, the issues that affect police officers because you know, the, you go from a heightened state, like your adrenaline. When's the last time you had an adrenaline shot? You know how, and, and Jeff, you can, you can back, you don't have to plead the fifth on this one. Do they even have the fifth in Canada? But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, but you know, that adrenaline shot that you get, like if somebody comes and gets in your face and you think, Oh my God, I'm gonna have to punch this guy. You know, that, that kind of like, imagine when's the last time that actually happened, but imagine doing that several times in a shift. Yeah. yeah. Every day for, you know, how long, are, how long is your career, you know? Right. And, and so your body typically needs 24 hours to recuperate from something like that, but you've got 25 minutes. Okay. I got another call. I got to go to, we took care of this one. We're going to that one. Okay. This one's cool. Oh, cat in a tree. All right. Well, um, we're good. Oh no. Domestic disturbance. Now you got to fight a drunk guy who just beat up his family. Okay. He's in jail now. Oh, traffic stop pull over a lady with the taillight out everything's cool oh, yeah, another traffic you know it, it just that's to bring out you know because as things have shifted you know you're, you're not just dealing with one situation a night or or one a month or you know one a year you know with the increased um you know and it it, it is coming from the local governments you know that they're doing the same thing in the hospital settings with the chaplains where you know, they're pushing that you're going room to room, you're seeing over 200 people a night, you know, with that on-call demand status, you know, individuals are having to go where, you know, sometimes it's, you know, how many calls do you answer a night? You, you could be getting, you know, 10, 12, sometimes 20 calls a day, a day. And you've got that constant up and down, up and down, up and down. And I think, you know, a lot of individuals are just facing that your adrenals just, you get tired because that constant hormone making status, you know, just it wears on you. Yeah. And um, you take it home and you compare cops to veterans, the national average suicide rate for veterans is 22 a day. Is that right. yep. uh, the percentage of cops that kill themselves? is higher than the veterans that are killing themselves. And where, when I brought up 
was brought up through the police culture, suck it up and drive on. Don't sit there and whine about it. Let's go. You know, you don't want to be seen as weak. You got to be your type A, get out there, take care of business. Yeah. Okay. You just saw a body cut in half and a bad car wreck. And you know, you had to pick up body parts off the road. Um, yeah, we all got problems, you know, go home, have a beer, go to sleep. And so the, the similarities and the things that we experience. when I was in Iraq, we got shot at a lot. I never got individually shot at as a cop, you know, 30 years of law enforcement. Something I, I can't articulate a time where some, I knew somebody was trying to kill me, but in Iraq it happened all the time. Now it was indirect fire. Usually they're shooting rockets or uh, mortars at us. But you know, when you're sitting there in your little birthing area and um, I'm not talking about a maternity ward birthing in the military mm-hmm. is, you know, what, where that, what they call where you're, you're sleeping and living and you hear boom, 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 and the wall shake, and you're like, holy crap, what was that? Well, we know what that was. Take cover because there might be more coming. Anybody get hit? Most times, no, but sometimes they would. You know, we, we took casualties when we were over there. Mm-hmm. And I took casualties at the police department. I had guys that worked for me get killed in my last, one of my last few years there at work, and that just destroyed me. I mean, it was he was a friend. I, I cared about him and uh you know we broke bread together and talked about our kids together and we're both you know uh harley enthusiasts at the time you know we we had some a lot of similarities and and a friendship and a kinship and what's worse than that though is i had more guys that i knew in the police department take their own lives than got uh killed in the line of duty either through vehicular or felonious assault. Um, and these are officers that you wouldn't really think about it. You know, we, we weren't trained to talk about it. We weren't trained to seek help like we are now. We were really emphasizing mental health at the state level. Um, they finally made PTSD compensable through workers' compensation for police officers in municipalities where the cumulative PTSD is now compensable as opposed to the, it used to have to be an individual incident. And people don't understand PTSD or PTSI. They think, okay, uh, I saw something horrible last night. Now I got it. No, that's not the way it works. It takes a while to fester and that's why it's so important to at the beginning of the incident shortly thereafter to talk about it, have a debrief, get a professional in there and, and let's talk about some, what you're feeling is normal. Um, the sleep you're losing is normal. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to cry. It's okay to, uh, talk about it with your peers. We're not going to think you're a less, less of, you know, um, super sensitive or a big baby or, you know, don't be a sissy, you know, or whatever the, you know, I'm not real politically correct. I talk how I was raised. Right. But, um, well, please, please continue that on this show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, now we're, we're making efforts to address the, the self harm, whether it's emotional or physical. And, and so I've got, Again, this isn't science. This is just me. This is my experience. I, I was a leader in the military. I was a leader on the police department. And I've, I've gone through some of these things myself and experienced it firsthand. So I'm speaking to you from my own, uh, my own personal experiences and what I observed throughout my career. And so this is, I think, 
the there's some several variables to the formula that unfortunately come out at the end um, as suicide and and this is what i've observed over the years you have an incident and you you wind up with ptsi or depression and it's either diagnosed or not treated or not but you have that going on um, and then you have self-medication where I, I got it. The only way I can get to sleep is to drown these dreams in some whiskey or whatever. And so people self-medicate just to get to sleep and, to, you know, try to get ready for the next day. And whether it's self-medication through alcohol, uh, over-the-counter drugs, which you can, you can abuse those too, uh, illegal, uh, you know, prescription, the opiate epidemic, which is ridiculous these days. Okay. So you self-prescribe. So you got, depression you got self-medication what happens next is typically your relationships start to fail mm. um, and if you're doing these other things and people don't know how to handle you uh, you don't know how to handle yourself you don't know how to explain to your loved ones why you're being a jerk uh, and then they get they've had enough of it right then they walk away and you make some bad decisions whenever you're uh, self-medicating sometimes mm. Uh, and whether that's sexual acting out or whether it's uh, family violence or whether it's just, you know, being mean or hateful or whatever. Uh, and then your relationship fails. Well, then your relationship fails. What happens when you go through a divorce? You have a financial crisis. And so the cops are having to work part-time jobs, all this stuff just to feed themselves because they're paying child support, spousal support, whatever the courts mandate, then they're doing all that and they wind up having disciplinary issues at work. You got all this stuff going on. And then you think, you know, I'm probably worth more dead than alive to the people that are counting on me. I'm, um, you know, I, I can't see a way out of the, a way out of this, this hole I've dug myself into. And then you have, um, you know, you have a weapon at your disposal and you know how to use it. You've been to suicide calls. You know what works and what doesn't. You don't hear about cops attempting suicide. You know, they're not some, some young lady experiencing teen angst sawing on her wrist with a butter knife in the corner listening to sad Alanis Morissette songs. No, cop's going yeah. to put the pistol in his mouth and pull the trigger. And that's it. You know, you get drunk, you take that gun, you say, screw it, pow. And, um, and that's the end of the story and not knowing the wake of misery you're leaving for everyone who loves you for the rest of their lives. You, you know, it's just where the whole thing could have been stopped at the beginning. You know, we make a Mayberry reference, right? Nip it in the bud. Remember that, right? Well, um, a good debrief, somebody to talk to somebody who's gone through it with you or gone through it before who can empathize and sympathize and hold your hand while you're um, trying to recover from whatever horrible thing you just went through um, would have stopped all that other stuff. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. I think, you know, I love that you brought up the multi-complexity of the issue that, you know, on top of all this, they, you know, the incident, the horrific trauma, then they have, you know, the depression, the loss, the compound 
you know, it's compound loss, compound grief, you know, compound <laughs> depression. And, you know, a lot of them, they just want that way out. And, you know, it can be thwarted, it can be headed off. You know, if even just through that talking saying, hey, you know, I'm having issues, you know, at home, I, you know, I don't know how to release my anger before I walk in that door with my family, you know, and, and because I'm at home, because I know I can just be myself there. That's where it's all coming out, you know, and I'm taking it out on my wife and kids. And um, so I think it's so important to, you know, be aware of that and to, you know, I know a lot of hospitals, uh, there's a lot of chaplains now who are working with law enforcement and who are doing those debriefings after incidents and, you know, being there to talk to. And, and it's important because I, I, I'm really involved in that right now. Um, I have a, a buddy who's a chaplain, senior chaplain with the Austin Police Department, and we partner in getting that information out there. We want to train other chaplains to be able to do it right. If you're a small town, little country church teacher, and you want to be a chaplain at the local sheriff's department because you know half of them go to your church or whatever that's good but that doesn't mean okay it's gonna if it hits the fan there uh pastor you're gonna need to do more than maybe you uh, plan to do i mean you're mm-hmm. you like saying you're the chaplain of the department but you really need to get trained it's more in depth than that and so uh, a lot of the forward-thinking police leaders are really emphasizing mental and financial health for these young officers mm-hmm. and, and coming into the academy and, and letting them know it's okay to get help. Uh, you know, in Austin, we had a staff psychologist, a staff psychologist, the cops sometimes don't really trust because they're afraid to you know, go back and tell yeah. on them to the people paying their check. But we have other avenues to get confidential help. And, um, and so it, it, same thing in the military, the, when I went over, in 2013 to the Persian Gulf, we had a hundred sailors on the mission. Uh, Two thirds of them went to Djibouti and one third of us went to uh, Bahrain to do the counter piracy mission and uh, all over the Persian Gulf. I think we've had already, it's what, 2021 now? We've had Mm -hmm. at least four or five people on that hundred person mission that killed themselves. And not because of the mission, so to speak, but, you know, because of unaddressed mental health issues and the reservists, I think, are particularly uh, vulnerable to it because in the active duty military, your chain of command sees you all the time. Mm -hmm. As a reservist on the weekends, I was, you know, I was gone for a year. I was active duty. I was doing it every day. But now I come back and the trauma or the issues that I have they don't really manifest themselves on a two days of drill at the reserve center, right. your chain of command isn't going to know it. And so, you know, this, I'm just thinking out loud right now. Um, yeah. So I think it's important, you know, as um, you know, how can citizens get involved? You know, it starts by knowing the people in your community who are the veterans, who are those who are, you know, reserves, who are those who are in the law enforcement, And, you know, if we offer ourselves, we're really getting to know each other as neighbors. That's where you get the, you know, the visual and the conversation and, and not being afraid to, you know, ask people, how are you doing? Or, you know, oh, it sounds like you had a really rough night. You don't need to know all the details. Well, Jess, 
you, I, I want to, I'm glad you said that. Let me just put this out there for people who have friends in the military or in law enforcement, um, people or the family members, people they love and care about the, they, if, if they're your friends and you want to know how to support them, first of all, we're being demonized and oppressed. Right. And so that does have an effect on retention and recruiting. And a lot of department, a lot of officers are just leaving the profession. You know, they're, they're, they've had enough. Uh, they've made sacrifices of themselves for years and years. And now, oh, all of a sudden we're the bad guy. And people are, some people are becoming confrontational with the, with the officers. But as a member of your community, you want to offer support to a veteran or a police officer. And you know that they're a cop just that, Hey, how are things going to work? You know, are you guys doing okay? Give them some words of encouragement. Well, let me tell you what, we love you guys around here. We would support you any day of the week. If you're out there fighting a bad guy on the side of the road, I'm stopping my car. I'm jumping in and I'm helping you. I'm not just picking up my camera phone and taking a picture of it to put it on YouTube. Okay. I'm getting in there. I got your back, brother. I got your back sister. That's what they need. And whenever you're talking to the, an officer, please don't do the following. Oh, you're a cop, huh? Hmm. Well, you know, I got pulled over one time and that mm -hmm. cop was a real jerk. You know what? Slow down. You don't want to get pulled over. I don't want to hear about it. You know, if, 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 if I find out what well, you're, Hey, I've got a online radio show. Oh uh, yeah. Oh, hi Jeff. Yeah. I'm an online radio guy. You know what? I tell you what, Howard Stern, I really hate that guy. Blah, 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 blah. And you're like, whoa, I don't, what did I do to you? You know, I don't want to hear every horror story about every DJ you've ever hated. Okay. Keep it to yourself. Oh, I like your show. Thanks for what you do. You're getting some issues out there. That's cool. Appreciate what you, your contribution to the community. Be positive. Don't, you know, just, oh, those cops are such jerks. Why did they do that? How come cops are going out there killing black people? How come they're doing this? Oh, it's like, oh God, please. <laughs> People are so ignorant about what we do and what our job is from the top of the chain of command all the way down. They don't, you know, well, why don't you just shoot them in the leg? Oh, I can't believe our current yeah. president actually <laughs> said that. I was like, have you ever even, have you has he even ever talked to a cop? I mean, do you know anything about the training and that poor, that little girl who was having a mental health crisis and going after everybody with a knife, you know, uh, and the officer had to shoot her, right? And they said, oh, my God, he could have shot the knife out of her hand. This isn't Yosemite Sam, okay? Uh, it's in the cartoon. This is real life. And, you know, oh, I, that's a whole different day of talking on that topic alone. But yeah, talk, talk to him about how's the wife and kids doing? You know, did you go fishing? Yeah. You know? Have them over for barbecues. Go fishing. Absolutely. You know, get, yeah. get to know Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that was a good, I'm glad you brought that up, Jesse. Well, you know what, it, it, what's staggering to me is the number of, uh, of cops that are dealing with things in this way and taking themselves. It's, that's a number. When Jesse told me this a week ago, I was shocked. And, you know, I knew it was something we had to talk about because we do want to talk about real issues. And, and listen, these are real people. Again, no right. one is worth anything more than anyone else. These people are out there to serve us. And they're going home and experiencing it. And Paul, you painted such a beautiful picture of how that trauma escalates and the snowball gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, 
you know, you're right, mix it with a little of alcohol or whatever that someone might be doing to offset some of it in the ways they're trying to deal with it. And all of a sudden, you know, listen, I've, I've had a saying for years, beer makes bad decisions. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, probably come up with a better one for whiskey. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's a few country songs about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There is, but you know, um, and Jesse's been working with the vets and stuff like that. Maybe we need to have an off-air discussion about doing something for police because the numbers are staggering in this. And you know, it's a one of the things. And I'm not offering a simple solution by any means. You know, and I'm not a I'm not a mental health expert or anything like that. But you know, just as a lay person, a citizen, someone who's concerned. And by the way, I have family members who are cops and. One of my best friends, uh, you know, who I hang out with and ride with all the time is a 32 year detective on the force. And, you know, he doesn't want to talk about the job, when right. out there. you know, uh, he wants an escape from it. And, you know, and, and quite honestly, I didn't want to talk about my work either, you know. But Jeff, you hit the nail on the head because one of the main things we talk about in some of the training we provide for our first responders um it's there's a program called resiliency strategies for first responders and one of the biggies is get something outside of law enforcement to keep yourself occupied when you're off duty for me i love hunting and fishing and hanging out on the lake and barbecuing that you know that's kind of my my happy place and for your buddy riding with you guys you know going out in the two months a year you can probably ride in canada uh and uh you know, letting that go and just uh, have a healthy outlet for your the, the, the play, your happy place, and and we we really emphasize that. And uh, and I'm joking about the motorcycle riding in Canada, but down in Texas, we ride year round. I mean, it, it's a nice place, but uh, Jeff's got a toy hauler. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. One of those trailer guys. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. In the winter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Drive it to that. Yeah. Bring it down to Texas and you'll yeah, be able I'm to coming to your place. I got to sit on the lake and barbecue. With That's you. it, man. I'll tell you. It's, it's uh, not that hard, you know, it, you know, doing, creating events like that in your community, you know, or working with, you know, those who head up the law enforcement department and saying, Hey, you know, uh, I want to help pitch in, you know, our community wants to pitch in. We want to give our law enforcement in our community, you know, a, a great weekend camping with their families or, you know, a barbecue. How can we help pitch in for that and, you know, make just a nice time for them and something, you know, they can just relax and enjoy and know that, you know, we're there supporting them. And yeah, it's not always an us against them. Um, right. You know, in, in, in my town where I live, I'm, I know the officers because of my, my, uh, my role in my civilian job. Now my retirement job, I train them. Um, and I have a good relationship with them and, and they have a good relationship in the community. You drive around where I live in Lago Vista, Texas, you see yard signs. We support our, our, our officers. We support our police and I've got two of them in my yard. And so, uh, and I even, I fly the thin blue line, Texas flag in front of my house. And I, I want them to know that when they drive by, they're driving by a community that actually supports them. And hey, I don't have to bring cookies to the police station. I don't have to, but like you, what we talked about earlier, how do you say, you know, thank you for your service? Um, 
you know, hey, thanks for keeping us safe, officer. We appreciate you. And everybody doesn't hate you. Uh, we're not all First Amendment auditors on YouTube trying to interfere with your job. We we do care about you and we do support you. And when you hurt, we hurt. You know, it, mm-hmm. it it's, it's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking when an officer loses his life in the line of duty and just, you know, during COVID we had uh, an officer killed in line of duty in San Marcos, uh, which is a town just South of Austin uh, last year. And just last week or week before they finally had the police uh, official funeral with the bagpipes and the, you know, all the pomp and circumstance to go along with it. But that's also very important for closure uh, for these police officers. Yeah. And, and it still hurts. I knew those guys and I worked with them and I've trained with them. And when I saw that, it just, uh, it it just breaks your heart. I, I, I wouldn't say, you know, for you to kind of think about, okay, how does this, how, how can I know how they feel? It's not quite like a family member, right? Um, when you have a family member die a sudden tragic death, it doesn't compare to when you have a police officer killed in your community that you may not know, but it's really close to that type of like, just, Oh my God, I can't believe, you know, it, like it'd be like if you had a coworker or a good friend that just maybe, you know, died in a motorcycle wreck or whatever, you know, it, it's that kind of hurt that, I feel when my fellow law enforcement, you know, get killed and, and we get last year was the highest line of duty deaths, I believe in our nation's history. Now, a lot of that was associated with COVID and a lot of those were corrections officers who were basically prisoners as well. And they, they had that exposure and uh, it's just, it was a bad, bad year for law enforcement. You, you had the COVID deaths, you had the public demonizing you, you had um, the violent, the uptick in violence now. And, and here's what people, I'm going to go down a rabbit trail here. Okay. Um, when big cities like Austin or Dallas or Minneapolis or whatever have one of these incidents and you got a city council that wants to defund the police um, the police de-police the city. Okay. They're, all right. You guys, we're the bad guys. All right, fine. I tell you what, we're only responding to 911 calls. We're going to park our car under a shade tree. And then I'm only going to go on these violent calls. The rest of them, I'm going to drive down a block, call them on the phone. Hey, can we take care of this over the phone? You won't even have a contact with a cop. And, um, the, a lot of the big cities are they're not doing the proactive police work they're not enforcing traffic which keeps us safe they're not going over and confronting suspicious characters maybe selling drugs or creeping around the neighborhood prowlers or whatever the cops aren't doing anything like that they're just sitting back going you know you need us we'll take our calls and we'll make our backups but that's about all you're going to get and so what do you have you have murder rates approaching those of the worst part of the seventies. Now in these major cities, you have violent, yeah, violent crime going through the roof. And none of this is associated with, uh, uh, the proliferation of gun violence and whatever, you know, this ain't a gun control issue. This is a, at all, this is a, um, 
This is your city. This is what you get, guys. You want you want the cop? No cops. You want us not to do our jobs? You want? Okay. Well, this is what you get. This is what you asked for. So, uh, all yeah. right, Paul. You went down this rabbit hole. I got to speak in here. Yeah, now. go for it. These counselors and things like that, like we noticed it in uh, in Minnesota and things like that, we we saw the experiment and how bad it failed. But yet, these people want to increase their personal details, securities. I think the cops should refuse to do it. I, I, you know what? Me too. Look what happened in Portland yesterday. Okay. The, the riot teams, for lack of a better word, uh, crowd management teams on these police departments are generally volunteer positions. This is not their main job. It's a collateral duty. They are uh, filed charges against one of their officers because of something that went on during one of the protests last summer in Portland. The entire crowd management team, the riot police, all said, all right, well, you're on your own. We quit. We're not going anymore. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, what, what, what? Nope. You can have your riot helmet back, your batons back, your shields back. Uh, I'm going to take my calls. I'm going to make my backup. So I'm going to show up to my regular shift. And you can't make me do otherwise. So uh, good luck with that. That's power to the people. And that's the power of numbers. And that's what, you know, we have to, as a people, have to understand, you know, to hold these stupid ass ideology ideological uh, oh, ideological uh, politicians and stuff like that you first off get rid of them who know? are they catering to who are they catering that's what i okay you follow get, the money oh yeah I, I agree yeah there's big big picture on that stuff I, I, and i i'm not ignorant okay i read i know what's going on yeah but when i look at the cities who are keep voting these bozos into office you know you get the leadership that you deserve. Okay. You guys are voting for these clowns. You're voting for these communists a bunch of times. That's what they are. They're communists and forget socialism. They're communism. The, the way they're trying to control thought, the way that they're trying to control your actions, the way they demonize you. Um, you saw the article about the Chinese immigrant who went through the cultural revolution in China in the sixties in Virginia. And she went there. Was, she's all over the news last week saying, you guys are doing what the, what the communists did, the Maoists, you know, trying to silence uh, dissension, trying to demonize people who disagree with you and um, shame them into stepping in line with your, your, your thought process. And, and, you know, I think the diversity of thought is what makes us great. And, and, I don't hate, I, I'm a conservative cop, okay? Grew up in a uber liberal city, city Austin, Travis County. Um, I couldn't have survived a career there if I didn't know how to get along with people that I wouldn't normally want to associate with, or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have them over at my house, but I, I can have a civil conversation with you. We can disagree, and I don't hate you. I don't, and even if I do disagree with you, I'm still going to have a beer with you. I mean, I'm not going to, uh, what happened to that? Why, why is me disagreeing with your thought process and be able to have an articulate, intelligent conversation as to why now you want to cancel me. Now you want to hate me. Now you want to make me this horrible, get, a, get over yourself, you know, get away from the computer and go talk to somebody and have a face-to-face -face conversation. That's right. Well, you know, we've gone down this rabbit hole, Jesse, with how people are programmed through media and things like yeah. that. We don't we don't necessarily need to go there today. Uh, but there's there's so many bigger issues 
that come up out of all of this. And, you know, again, I don't want to oversimplify things, but some of the things that we talk about, you know, that, that we, first of all, we've allowed our countries to get this way because we've been lackadaisical. Uh, we really need to start getting involved in our communities, uh, start being with people again, not just coming home, following a routine, sitting on your couch and watching TV. Those days have to be over for most people. Um, you know, we have to get back to the fundamentals in life. And, and this will apply to, you know, even, you know, our relationships with, uh, with cops, with anybody is love your neighbor. Like, like it really can be that simple. Um, you know, it's not going to solve every problem in the world, but it's going to solve a lot of them, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) Like, how can you go wrong with that? I tell, I would tell my officers out there. Um, who it's easy to get jaded when you're on sixth street and you're dealing with drunks or transients or drug dealers all the time. And you are just standing on a corner with your arms crossed, scowling at the world, waiting for the next fight to break out that you got to break up. I said, you know what? Smile, say hi to somebody. If they say, hi officer. Don't look at them. Like they just called you a dirty word. Say hi back. Hey, how's it going? You know, have a nice day. Hey, appreciate you being here, cops, you know, for keeping us safe. Thank you. We appreciate that uh, recognition. I said, be nice. And whenever you interact with people, you don't talk to them like you want, assuming you like your mom, uh, like you would want a cop to talk to your mom, you know, be nice. Yes, ma'am. And smile, you know, and and be personable and don't be afraid to shake a hand. I mean, I've seen cops. I don't shake hands. It's like, okay, COVID, whatever, pre-COVID, they were doing that. But I'm like, shake a hand, sit down, take the time to, you know, you don't have to race to the next call if it's not a priority. Just take the time to listen, be empathetic, and uh, and you get more flies with honey than vinegar and, and just let the inner, you know, you come out and, and remember why you became a cop. Uh, you didn't come become a cop to shoot bad guys and drive fast. That's not why most of us, if that's why you become a cop, then go be a cop somewhere else. You know, don't come to my department. Um, and, and honestly, guys, I'll tell you, I didn't become a cop because I had this pie in the sky idea. I was, it was the altruistic reasons. That's not why I became a cop. I became a cop because I majored in criminal justice. I majored in criminal justice because it was the easiest major I could find that didn't include math or science, which I'm terrible at. Okay. I, gra- <laughs> I, I graduated magna cum barely. Okay. I had like a 2.1 GPA. I mean, I hated school. I still hate school, uh, but I got my degree. And then my wife was sitting there watching me at these minimum wage jobs in the D.C. area going, you have a degree in criminal justice. The Metropolitan Police Department's hiring basically anybody with a pulse. It's a good job with benefits. I'm tired. You need to contribute to the household more than minimum wage. It's like, oh, fine. God, I'm not going to go be a cop in D.C., godforsaken murder capital of the country during the height of the drug wars. I was like, I don't I'm scared. You know, I was I was like a white boy from the suburbs, you know, I, I, I'm going to go into the inner city where they're uh, the, at the time, 1991, my last full year in DC, we had like 492 homicides in 66 square miles of Washington, DC. Wow. And, and, you know, I went in there, but you know what I found out? God put my wife in my life for a reason. And 
she put her boot in my behind for a reason. He knew she was going to keep me straight and motivate me. And I found out that I loved the job. Absolutely loved it. And even though I was in this asshole, you know, like Trump said country, which is DC at the time, I actually got to meet some wonderful people living in that terrible community sometimes. And, and that really makes it worthwhile. I, I got more of a kick out of being able to help somebody change a tire, help them find their way out of being lost, uh, give them a ride if their car breaks down. I got more of a kick doing that and having that, the, you know, those warm fuzzies as than I did chasing bad guys and, uh, you know, tackling them and throwing them in jail and fighting them and all that stuff. I mean, okay, when you're a young guy, I was 25 when I was a cop when I first started, you know, that's fun. I got to admit, you know, it's like playing football. You know, you're all that stuff is really cool. Uh, you know, going code three, chasing a stolen car or whatever. I mean, that's cool. But in the big picture, the, the personal interaction and helping people out always made me feel better. It really did. And I'm not alone. Okay. That's normal. I'm not an anomaly. That's normal. And that's what people need to understand. We as a profession, as a human being are in the job for the right reasons. We have your bad apples and everything, right? right? Okay. Take the bad apple out and move forward. All right. Let's learn from that mistake and move forward and not concentrate on the differences between us, but the, the similarities. Absolutely. What a great ending on this show. You know, I think that's, yeah, you, you couldn't have said it better. I think. <clears throat> yeah thank you but we want to thank you for coming on the show paul uh what a great great guest you have been and and this is a reality and you know we really need to overcome these statistics uh you know just some general thoughts and i have one final question for you actually as well paul but uh a general thought on this is you know no matter what you do for a living you know we're focusing on the police force now and law enforcement but don't let your career define who you are. 100%. You're not a stockbroker. No, you're a, you're a husband, you're a father, you're a brother, you're a son, a, a daughter. Don't let what you do define you because that doesn't that doesn't establish your worth. Neither does your bank account establish your worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'll just go a little step further and it just got put on my heart. If there's someone in our listening audience that is a cop, uh, that is a military, that's suffering through some of these things. Look, I'm not a professional, but I'll take the time and I'll listen to your story. And that's awesome. Jeff. Um, So write on Jeff at gmail.com. I'll check the emails regularly for the next week. If, uh, if someone hears this and they just want to have an ear, you got mine. Yep. And you'll have my information. Same thing here. And let me, to to ride on what you just said jeff i tell my guys this whether they were navy or whether it was police said you live you don't you don't uh live to work you work to live it pays for your lifestyle it doesn't define who you are and at the end of your life you're not going to be laying on your deathbed wishing you had spent more time at work Exactly. You will be you will be regretting that time 
that you didn't spend with the ones that really matter, and that's your family and friends. So I'm going to regret going back to this question, but I have to, <laughs> because it, we have such a, that's such a great way to end the show right there. But the two teenagers shooting it up, what happened to those? The big picture hadn't been put out. The the behind the scenes thing um, hadn't. They they really they can't at this early stage of the investigations. They can't let out a lot. Okay, all that's out there is what's in the probable cause affidavit or the you know whatever they wrote up to get them arrested. Um, so but, they were arrested and quickly. Uh, pretty quick. the The youngest one got popped first. Fifteen years old. The 17 year old, I think they pulled him out of summer school and uh, arrested him out of there in cooperation with the Colleen Police Department. But um, it, it's who knows? It's not a gun control issue. It's a control your child issue. If you ask me, um, what's your kid doing on 6th Street? What's your 15 and 17 year old doing on 6th Street at two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night or you know Sunday morning? Where, where were the parents? Yeah, and, I, and I'm not going to make any assumptions, but I would just raise the question, uh, are they playing a lot of video games? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, who's not in that generation? Right? Yeah, and, and what's it training you for? But listen, we'll go down that hole another time, Paul. Uh, is there is do you want to give out some information or should I can I put a link in if someone yeah, wants to email well, you or something? I'll share you uh, some links um, through Jesse and, and we'll... Um, We'll get that that way. Um, yeah, you I'll, can just reply all to the uh, to the link that I sent you. Yeah, and that'll come to me. Perfect. Okay. Jesse, final thoughts? No, what a great show! And Paul, you're an excellent guest. We'd love to have you back and continue to, you know, talk some more and bring this issue out because I think, you know, as people start to engage with their community, I think that's where we're going to see some change in addressing the issues of, you know, whether it's. Um, you know, the cop marriage rates or the suicide rates, you know, either way, those are both big community problems that we need to address. So. All right. Well, God bless you both and uh, have a great Father's Day weekend. Thank you. And you too. <laughs> all right. Yourself as well. Just the final announcements. Uh, listen, going into Father's Day weekend, we've got right on you. The coupon code is going to be in the description. It's essentially half off creating wealth through stewardship. It'll probably never be this inexpensive again. In fact, you'll make money by taking the course and I'm gonna show you how. Uh, but anyways, uh, thanks for listening to Right On Radio. Jessie's links are in the description as well. Her book is available on Amazon. Search her name, you'll find all this stuff. And we wanna thank again, Paul, for being on the program. We'll see you on Revelation Sunday. Do not miss this one because I think there's going to be a lot of answers to a lot of questions this Father's Day Sunday. So in the meantime, remember, love your God, love your family, love your neighbor, and make a difference in your community. Who's right? Who's right? He's right. Right on radio. Right on radio.